Just for a few minutes this morning, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. A little bit completely different topic this morning. I want to talk to you on the subject, hand to plow. Hand to plow. Luke chapter 9, we'll start reading in verse number 51, as soon as I hear the rustling of the pages stop. I love the sound of rustling of pages. Luke chapter 9, let's look at verse number 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them, and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that in these few moments that we spend, I pray you'll give wisdom. I pray, Father, you'll fill me with your spirit. Help me to have clarity of thought, clarity of speech. And I pray, Father, that this message will speak uh, as you would have it to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, since I will not be here with you next Sunday, dads, let me be the first to say Happy Father's Day because I won't be able to wish you that. I will be in the Holy Land, Lord willing, uh, celebrating the Lord's Day there. Uh, so Father's Day is an important day, and I, I kind of miss the fact that I'm not going to be here. So make sure that you, uh, you, you hug the dads and, and make it a great day for them. But next Sunday is also important for another reason, and I, I want to kind of mention that and just spend a few minutes uh, on that topic today, because next Sunday, the fact is, probably next Sunday, is the last day that this auditorium will exist in the configuration that it is in right now. If all works according to plan, and if you look at the little yellow sheet that's in your bulletin, you'll see what that plan is. The fact is that uh, next Sunday afternoon, a group of you are probably going to descend upon this room and remove all of these pews. And uh, some folks are going to come and take them and put them in their homes. And then the following Monday, the crew is going to descend on this place Lord willing, if all works according to plan, they're going to descend upon this place and they're going to redo the ceiling and redo the walls and tear out this platform and remove the baptistry, which will eventually be replaced with something else, and uh, completely redo the carpeting and all kinds of good things are going to take place. And so when I and the group that's traveling with us to Israel uh, leave tomorrow morning at 6.30 a.m., right, Connie, 6.30 a.m.? Uh, and be praying for us on that. When we leave, we will have seen this probably for the last time, the way it looks today. And when we return, assuming, assuming that everything works for your plan, it's going to look completely different. It's going to be a completely different configuration. Recently, I was going through some things that my grandmother had left behind when she was called home to be with the Lord this past year. For many, many years, my grandmother was the 
historian of the Randolph Christian Church, which if you do not know that, and we have enough new folks here that maybe you don't know that uh, up until about five years ago or six years ago, this was the Randolph Christian Church. And for most of its life, that's what it's been called, although not always. It's had several names. Anyway, she was the historian. And I found this document in a bunch of other things that she she had, and all kinds of history things. This is dated May 1928. And uh, it was it was talking about the 100th anniversary of the church, which was in 1928. And if you go downstairs and look, there is a picture hanging on the wall of this particular celebration. But let me just read a little bit of this. I won't read it all because it has a lot of names and things. But I just want you to read this. It says, I want to read this. It says, July 21st, 1828, the Church of Christ of Randolph was organized and will celebrate its 100th anniversary in July of this year. This is the only document I've ever seen that called it the Church of Christ. So there's yet another name. If you go to our website, you'll see a historical document out there where I have managed to try to find all these different names this church has been called down through the years. There's another one that I'd never heard before. The Church of Christ of Randolph. The Church of Randolph was formed on the New Testament principles. And the following names composed the congregation. I won't read that part. There's several names there. In 1830, a meeting house, 38 by 38, was built west of the square on the north side of the road, close to what is known as the Johnny Cake Hollow Road. It was known as the Old Red Meeting House and was a very plain structure with rough boards for seats and split sticks for legs. You know, this confuses me a little bit because my understanding was the original meeting house was where the uh, Napa store sits right now, and that doesn't sound like Johnny Cake Hollow Road to me. But uh, anyway, somewhere there was a 38 by 38 building. There was no aristocracy among the early members of the church, all meeting on a common level. Father and mother dressed in plain homemade clothes, and the boys and girls went to meeting barefoot in the summertime. In the summer, women were generally supplied with a large turkey tail fan, which was capable of doing good service on a hot day. And there were two services on each Sabbath day. It was not an uncommon thing for the preacher to enter the pulpit wearing cowhide boots, and if the weather was warm, to lay aside his coat. Amen. And it is said that these plain men could quote more scripture than the educated Orthodox preachers of the present time. In August 1832, a yearly meeting was held in Randolph. These meetings were a feature of the itinerary of the disciples on the Western Reserve for many years. They were great meetings, usually held in the woods or under tent, and were in session from Friday until Sunday. The Randolph Church has been the mother of many churches nearby. I believe... That there's only one still remaining. The Mogador Christian Church, I found evidence, was a church plant from this. There was one in Deerfield, which I don't think is there anymore, and a few others which I don't think are there as well. But I believe the Mogador Church is a, uh, a daughter church of this one. The membership was never large, and during the anti-slavery excitement of 1845, the church was tested almost to the limit of its strength. There was a strong anti-slavery sentiment in the town, and a resolution was adopted at a church meeting by a large majority, declaring they would not fellowship with slaveholders or their apologists. The adoption of this resolution caused a serious division in the church, and some of its members withdrew, never to return. In 1861, a new meeting house was built where the present building now stands, and new life took possession of the church. Sardis Loomis relates that story the story that after this meeting house was erected, the question of funds for seating it confronted the congregation who thought they had given to the limit of their means. The suggestion was made that they put in the seats from the old building, the, the slabs of wood with stick legs. This was objected to, so by staunch pioneer effort, funds were raised and new seats were put in the building. In 1884 and 85, during the time O.C. Atwater was pastor, the present large and convenient church building, that would be this one, 
was built at a cost of, anybody want to guess? How much? $4,000. How much we spent it just on carpet? $4,000. At the present time, the basement is being remodeled and made ready for a dining room for the centennial celebration, which will be the next large event in the church history. When I first read that, I got all excited because I thought it was talking about the, these pews. I thought it was telling me when these pews were purchased. But as I reread that, I think actually that might have been the previous building's pews. But it's interesting, is it not, to read the history of the church. And as we come to times like this where we're going through change and where we're implementing some new things, uh, there, there's always the possibility that some might be a little bit distressed over that. Mixed feelings, I suppose. And as we think about especially, of all the things we're doing in here, the removal of the pews is the one that I have heard the most consternation over. Some have sentimental attachment to things like this just because we like old things, antique things. The older I get, the more I I kind of have that same kind of a feeling. Some have come here long enough now to form an attachment to the ambience of the room just the way it is. Some of you were attracted to this church in the first place because you walked in here and you liked the way it looked. You fell in love with the place just because the way it looked. More than one of you have told me that the little old country church ambiance is what first attracted you to this place. But I would suggest, and I've told myself I'm going to quit saying that. I say that too much in my preaching. But nonetheless, I digress. I would say that I have probably more reason to regret the removal of these pews than anybody in this room. Because I have more history here, I think, than just about anybody in the room. When my family first moved to Randolph prior to my entering the fifth grade, and now that was a long, 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 long time ago. Prior to my entering the fifth grade, we started coming to this church and these pews. I remember sitting right back there, right back there in the corner. That's where I used to sit with a group of other young people who, sadly, today, as far as I know, none of whom are serving the Lord today or even in church. But nonetheless, I remember sitting back there. They didn't have cushions on them then, but they were here. I remember that when I first met the woman who was going to become my wife, I was sitting in these pews. I remember that when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior at the age of 12, I was sitting in these pews. I remember that when I first felt the call to preach, I was sitting in these pews. Uh, Paul Phillips, who's now pastor of Liberty Bible Church, was the pastor here at the time. And uh, that's when I first felt the tug that I needed to surrender to the ministry. I remember that when Beth and I pledged to love, honor, and cherish each other forever and ever and ever, our friends and family were sitting in these pews. And so the fact is, there's no question, there's no question, there's a measure of sadness in my heart. As I walk out of this room today, I know I'm going to touch these pews for the very last time, assuming everything goes according to plan. They won't be here when I get back. And yet I have to tell you this, I welcome that sadness. I welcome that sadness. Because even more important than what we're saying goodbye to today is the opportunity that we have now to do something even better and even greater for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that by putting in the additional seating that we're going to put in here, we're going to gain somewhere around 25% more capacity in the room. And God is going to be pleased with that. 
You know, we have a 610 plan. We haven't talked about it in a long time, but our 610 plan, which was to outline our goals for the next five years for Friendship Bible Church, we outlined three main goals that we wanted to achieve. You remember that? We said that believing that our mission as a church was to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That believing that our mission as a church was to go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We said said that believing that our mission is to be witnesses unto him, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. We said believing that our mission is to go, to make disciples, to do it everywhere, and to do it until he comes. We said believing that, there are three things we want to accomplish in the next five years. One of them is to maximize our outreach to Randolph, our Jerusalem. One is to maximize our outreach to Judea and Samaria, the regions around. And one is to maximize our outreach to the world, the uttermost parts of the earth. We've made some progress on all of those. We've certainly made some progress, I think, on the to the ends of the earth part, the the uttermost part of the world, uh, uttermost parts of the earth. We have the to the ends of the earth project, and I hope you'll read the little letter that's in your bulletin today from somebody, I think he was from Argentina maybe, who uh, someone had uh, given to the, to the Ends of the Earth Project, and he was thanking us for that gift. And we're so thankful for Sister Sarah being with us today and the opportunity to support people like her and our other missionaries that we support. And so we're making some progress there. But it's that first goal that's most relevant to our discussion today because the very reason we're going to configure this room is so that we might better reach Randolph. We're not doing this so that we can just have more comfortable seats for our backsides. We're doing this so that we can reach Randolph more effectively, our Jerusalem. Soon, very soon, our king is coming back. And when he comes back, you know, he's not going to give a rip how well we maintain the history of this building. What he's going to care about is did we go and reach our community for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd like you to notice our text for this morning, and I just want to make two comments on it, two thoughts, and then we'll be done. I want to be quick this morning. Our text is verse number 62. Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Two thoughts this morning. We must be looking forward. And number two, we must be moving forward. Just those two thoughts, just for a moment. First of all, we must be looking forward. You know, those of you who have seen where I live know that I have to mow an awful lot of lawn. Awful lot of lawn. Seems like that's all I do in the summertime is mow lawn. You know, I've learned some things down through the years about mowing lawn. I have learned, for example, how, if you're going to mow lawn, you mow in a straight line. You know, if you look straight down at the end of your over your tractor hood, and you're just kind of looking at the ground as you mow along there, you get to the end of a great long stretch of grass, and you're going to look back, and you will have done this the whole way. But if, as you're mowing, you pick something way off in the distance, a tree or a rock or a neighbor's house or a tuft of grass or something, whatever, you keep your eyeball right on that, and as you go, you get to the end of that, and you turn around, you look, and you will have mowed the straightest line it is possible to mow. You know, it's also true, I believe, of plowing. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Same thing's true. If you're trying to plow a straight furrow, you're going to have to look off and pick a target. Otherwise, you're going to have a crooked line. You need to keep your eye on the goal. I like the way the writer of the Hebrews put it. 
He said in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, looking unto Jesus. It's certainly one of the keys to success in the Christian life, is it not? To keep our eyes fixed on the goal to keep our eyes looking to jesus i've been reading and some of you probably get sick of me mentioning this but i've been reading the pilgrim's progress again lately i go out and touch that book every once in a while and pilgrim's progress is a wonderful book and i always recommend that people should read it but it so graphically describes the dangers of us taking our eyes off the goal It describes the journey of a fellow by the name of Christian. And as long as Christian kept his eyes on the goal, he was fine. But as he journeyed along, he would see things along the side that would drag his attention away. And when he would allow that to happen, he would fall into all kinds of troubles and trials and difficulties. Oh, we need to keep our eye on the goal. Both as individual believers and as a local church, while we're plowing for Jesus, we need to keep our eyes focused on that goal. Don't look back. Don't worry about what's behind. Only what's ahead. But it's not enough to just look ahead. We must also move ahead. We must always be moving forward. The key verse which was in our 610 plan, which we referenced over and over and over again, was Exodus chapter 14 and verse number 15 when God said to Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Not enough to just look forward. We need to be moving forward. Always. You know, there's no place in the service of God for retreat. This doesn't exist. There's no place in the service of God for standing still. Forward is the only direction a Christian or a church should be moving. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. That's, that's a, a forward assault. It's not a retreat. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not a picture of sitting around doing nothing. It's a picture of actively engaging the enemy, of storming forward in attack mode. In Ephesians chapter 6, we have the whole armor of God. You remember that story. We won't, we won't go there. You could read it on your own. But in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, put on the whole armor of God. And it talks about the breastplate of righteousness and the Helmet of salvation, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking the sword of the spirit, you know, having the, the shield of faith and all that stuff. Remember that? But there's absolutely nothing in that large litany of armor for our back because we must be moving forward always. We're vulnerable to the enemy when we retreat. We're vulnerable to the enemy when we stand still. So, yeah, it's good to have a heavenward gaze. We are told to look unto Jesus. But we need to be moving. We need to be moving. Looking is not enough. In Acts chapter 1, we get one of our verses that that we've mentioned already today. You should be witnesses unto me. But in Acts chapter 1, we have the story of Jesus ascending back to heaven. In just a few days, some of us will stand on a mountaintop where they claim Jesus ascended directly from. Where they claim that you can even see his footprint there in a rock which is just ridiculous hogwash. But nonetheless, we will stand there, and we will see that, and we will ponder what it must have been like when the disciples stood and watched Jesus Christ 
rise into the sky. He had walked on this earth. He had been crucified. He had been buried. He had been resurrected. He had spent time with them. And then he had gone back to heaven. And they were standing there, gazing up into heaven. They had their eyes fixed, did they not? They had their eyes fixed right on him. They were looking right where he went, waiting for him to come back. And then suddenly an angel appeared before them and said, You men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing up into heaven? And proceeded to point out to them they had things to do. It's not just enough to be looking. We need to be moving forward as well. So we need to be plowing. I think that's what Jesus was telling us here. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We need to be hearing our commander-in-chief's call to attack and moving forward. And so, when I leave this place this morning, I don't know about you, but when I leave this place this morning, I will rub my hands probably for the last time over these ancient, ancient pews. And there will be a part of me that will be a little sad. But only for a moment. Only for a moment. For as I gaze forward to all God is going to do in this place. I cannot help but rejoice and look forward to it. I know he's not done with Friendship Bible Church. I know that he has all kinds of plans. And I know that the more that we do to position this church to reach Randolph with his wonderful good news, his gospel, is only going to be a good thing. So may all of us, here's my encouragement to you, here's my challenge to you, may all of us put our hands to the plow. And may we not look back. Let's just keep on going forward. That's the only way for the Christian to go.